Today, I want to talk about guardrails when it comes to your finances, guardrails when it comes to money. We all do love money. It's everywhere. But this is why it's so important, because money tends to blind us. Money tends to overwhelm us into thinking that it's more important than other things are in our lives. And so we need to recognize some very critical guardrails that need to be placed to prevent us from getting into dangerous areas when it comes to our finances, how we spend our money, what we do with our money, how we treat our money. And it's all into play here. And it's interesting to me that I work at a high school. I'm a high school teacher, and I also work as a, a student life spiritual director. And I get to counsel students all throughout the week, and they come into my office, and I get to sit down and just talk to them, see how they're doing. And in my classes, I have a little prayer journal that I pass around that students can write prayer requests anonymously, but I know all the writing now, so it's kind of a cheater way. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, this is anonymous, and I can be like, oh, I know what you wrote. Um, but it's amazing that when I see these prayer requests, or when the students come up to me, typically when they approach me, it's revolving around one of just a couple things. It's either some kind of anger or depression, because A, they're in school and everybody hates school, so it's anger, or it's depression because they're in school and they're failing all their classes. Uh, if it's not that, it's a relationship. That's either I'm trying to start a relationship or I'm trying to end a relationship. How should I do this? Or I'm trying to end a relationship to start a new relationship and they know each other and it's really awkward, right? So, whew, love my job. So we have that. If it's not that, it could be something along the lines of I absolutely don't like this teacher or I don't like this student. So how do I deal with this? And that's a little bit more severe, but the fourth one, and probably one of the more main ones that I have students come up to me is they're just feeling empty. And a lot of the emptiness, it actually stems from them hearing their parents argue. And I work at a Christian school, and I know that this, my school isn't necessarily the only school that has this happening, and you know, it may be a handful of us, but one of the really sad things that I'm seeing more and more is that the children are watching their parents fight in the home. And they're taking this series of fighting and they're modeling it in their own life. And they're saying, well, are they fighting because of something that I did? Or more specifically, as I've seen lately with the economy, parents are fighting when it comes to money. And so the kids start thinking, would my parents have been able to do life differently if I had never been born? Would my parents fight less if I didn't tax them so much? They see their parents fighting and quabbling and are troubled over this money, and somehow they think it's their fault. But something that's even more scary that I've noticed in this year in particular is a rise of apathy. And you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. But there's a rise of apathy to where a lot of the students, they're seeing their parents fight about money. They're seeing mom and dad who worked. They went to school. They got degrees. They got doctorates. They got masters. They got majors. And then the economy tanked, and then they're now out of work. And they've worked their whole life pursuing academic excellence. And then they get higher and higher in the company, and all of a sudden, and one day it's gone. And so now they're taking this and they're saying, what's the point of me even trying in school anymore? What's the point? Why am I here? I'm here only because my parents want me to be here. But what good did it do them? They studied their whole life, and it got them nothing. They have no money. They're fighting all the time. We're not rich. We're having to move from place to place, downsizing every time, selling everything in our home. What's the point? And it breaks my heart that this has become something that's almost predictable. That a lot of the students, they're just seeing this modeled in their families, and it's heartbreaking. And the reason it's heartbreaking is because it's showing me the grip that money has on our society, showing us the influence that money has everywhere we go. 
And it's predictable. In fact, I would wage that if I were to ask in this room, how many of us have ever had a greatest regret dealing something with finances? Most of the hands would be raised in this room. Because finances affects everyone, whether you're poor, you're rich, or you're somewhere in between. It affects everyone. And it's important that we have these guardrails in place. And here's the fascinating thing. As, as true as all of this is, as true as we see this developing in our culture, the culture completely ignores everything that the Bible has to say about money and about how we're supposed to use money when it comes to it. And it's fascinating to me because I can see in Scripture it gives us the guidelines of exactly what we're supposed to do to find joy and contentment with the riches that God gives us. But our culture is one that says, oh, well, it's the Bible, it's the church, the church just wants your money. The church just wants you to give. They want you to throw money in the offering plate. Who cares about your own personal life? Give to the church. See, that's what society thinks, but it's so untrue. It's so untrue. And when we take a look at what Jesus says in Scripture, he writes a lot about money. God has a lot to say when it comes to finances, about what we do with this money, how we spend it, and all of these things. And I don't know too much about other cultures, but I would guess that if our culture— if our society that we live in were to actually take the Bible, read what it says about money, and actually apply this for just six months, just to actually do what the Bible says for six months, we would have a cultural revolution in every positive sense of the word. And it would be amazing. We would see this world change. We'd see this generation change. Because the Bible, what it has to say about money, it's life-changing, but we choose to ignore it. Because our own worries, our own fears take precedent over what the Bible has to say. So today I want to talk specifically about establishing some guardrails when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your money. And I don't know everything there is to know about money. I didn't go to school to be an accountant. I will never know everything besides it's a dollar or it's a bill that's got a number on it and then I can use it to exchange things, right? That's the extent of my knowledge of money. I don't know too much, but I do know what the Bible has to say about money. And the reason I do know is because it's in there a lot. And the reason that Jesus says so much in Scripture about money, it actually has nothing at all to do with money. It's interesting. What it really comes down to, and I'd like you to fill this out in your outlines, what it really comes down to is it has everything to do with your devotion. It has everything to do with your devotion. Here's what God knows about you because it's been true from the beginning of humanity. God knows that his chief competition for your heart for your loyalty, for your fellowship, for your service, for your devotion, it's not the devil. You don't sit at home and you wake up and like, oh, all right, today am I worshiping God or am I worshiping Satan? And if that's the case, then please see us afterwards. It's a different sermon for you. But <laughs> nevertheless, we don't do this. You see, this isn't the reality. The reality is, is that inside each and every one of us, there's this internal struggle. There's this struggle and this war that rages inside of us that says, am I going to put my entire dependency on God and his word, or am I going to place my trust in my wealth and the consumption of the things that I own? Where's it going to be? Well, I know that God's going to do these great things. I know he's going to, but that's the key. He's going to. It's not going to happen. So why go this way when I can be satisfied here and now with the consumption of things upon this earth? And we're torn. And this is where that struggle comes in. This is why God says it's not about money. It's never been about money. It's about where your devotion lies, where your heart lies, where your loyalty lies in all of this. And here's how Jesus addresses this. And I want you guys to look at the tension in this verse. 
This comes from Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount over 2,000 years ago. And he said this, and it still rings truth today, and it's so awesome. And if you open up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you can read it on the screen behind me. It says the following, No one can serve two masters. Let me pause there for a second. You see, in our American society, in our American culture, we don't understand a master, right? We're not a slave to things. So we say, well, I'm an American. I've got my freedom. Go America, right? I got my freedom. Nobody is holding me hostage. I am not a slave. I don't have a master. You'll see where we're going with this in a second. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And this is that key phrase, and I want you to write this down because this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. It just can't happen. You can't have these two masters. And Jesus, he says, let me help you recognize something in your life, something that's very important. There's this tension within you about who's going to be the master, who's going to be the ruler, who's going to be in charge of your life. And it's either going to be the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of acquiring more and more things or the pursuit of trying to find some financial stability, or it's going to be the pursuit of God. And this struggle, it wages inside of us. It's this tension because God wants us to treat him as our ruler. God wants us to treat him as our master, as our father, because he knows what's best for us. And he cares for us. And he knows what's going on in our life. God wants our devotion. God wants our undivided attention. But he knows that his chief competition is your stuff and its acquisition. It's the acquisition of our stuff. So many times we put other things before God. And that's why there's so much in Scripture that deals with money, that deals with this topic. So how does this all relate to a guardrail? Well, that's great, but how do we set guardrails? What are some actionable steps or something that we can place in our lives when it comes to setting these personal boundaries to prevent us from getting into dangerous areas with our finances? Well, there's a couple things that we need to notice. You see, on the road to success, or on any road for that matter, there's always a couple times some ditches on the side. And you can either hit a ditch and flip upside down, or you can hit a ditch and bounce back out, but ditches are pretty dangerous. And it's important for us to recognize these ditches. And on the road to finances, there are two ditches, one on either side. And I want you to write these down. The first ditch has to do with the ditch of the consumer, right? We all love to consume, we all love to take in. We all love to get and get and get, right? We love having things as long as we're never called a hoarder, right? Nobody ever wants to be called a hoarder, right? I will take and take and take, but as long as I'm not a hoarder, I'm completely fine, right? We all have this ditch of the consumer in our life, and consuming is as follows. It means that everything that comes your way, you use up. It means when you get your paycheck, your paycheck turns into money. Money turns into things in your house. Money may turn into a new house or a new car or a new boat or a second car or a second boat, whatever it may be. We consume, we consume, and we consume. And we get in this mindset that it's all for me. And so we take and we take and we take and we're consuming, we're spending, we're doing all this kind of stuff to the point where we start to consume everything. And the more that you start to consume everything, the more consumer debt you start to rack up because you don't realize how deep you're in. That's the first ditch. But on the opposite side is the other ditch. And this is the ditch of the hoarder, right? Nobody likes this ditch, but it's a reality. What about this? 
What about that? What if I want to retire? What if I get sick? What if something bad happens in the economy? So when I get money in, I'm just going to keep it and I'm going to hold it dear. I'm going to keep it tight. I'm not going to spend it. I'm just going to protect it. I'm going to hold it in here. I'm never going to do anything with it. I'm just protecting it because it's mine. That's the ditch of the hoarder. It's the ditch, consuming and hoarding. Now, the interesting thing about consumers and hoarders is they typically marry each other, don't they? right? Some of you know this to be true, but in a marriage, you don't call them consumers and hoarders. You call them spenders and savers, right? And some of you may say, well, I'm a spender or I'm a saver. You know what? God is a saver, so that makes me godly. It's okay. I can be a consumer because God was a consumer. He saved, right? No, when it comes down to it, it's you're either a consumer or a hoarder, but there's a dangerous thing that we need to recognize here that these things, they both have something in common, and it's a major problem. They're both very self-centered, and they leave us living like in reality there is no God. Because we put our dependence upon other things and our acquisition of things rather than our dependence in what God can provide for us. And it's so dangerous. And there's something else that's in this that really fuels both consumers and hoarders. And it may be difficult to hear because most of us fall into this category. And I'm going to be a little bit rough for the next couple of minutes, but it's something that you need to hear. Both consumers and hoarders, they're fueled by greed. That's what it comes down to. They really are fueled by a desire of greed. It's for me. It's for my ones. You know, greed is something that's very difficult to see in the mirror. I have never once encountered someone in my time of ministry who's approached me and said, Matt, can you pray for me? I'm a greedy person. Never happened, right? They say, oh, you know what? I'm a saver. I protect things. I'm cautious. I'm careful. I do all these things. It's very difficult to see greed in the mirror because we don't want to recognize it in our own lives. We'd be terrified if we saw the true grip that greed holds upon our lives. It's frightening. So Jesus, he does us this favor, and all of the scripture, and every time he's talking about money, every time that he's dealing with this subject, he kind of includes this in there. He kind of throws it in there to give us a wake-up call, to kind of allow us to, our eyes to be open to truly see what this is. And if you were to take everything that Jesus had to say about money and kind of sum it up a little bit and apply some kind of a definition to it, Jesus' definition of greed would be this. He would say, it's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. That's what greed is. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's personal. Everything belongs to me. What I want, I get, no matter what it is. It's all for my consumption. But the problem with this is, it leaves you living like there's no God. It leaves you living your life like there is no God. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that you don't go to church. What it means is that when the major financial decisions or even the major decisions come into factor of your life, you don't say, God, how are you going to work in this situation? You say, where is this going to leave me financially? What is this going to do to my finances? How am I going to survive? Am I still going to be able to get what I want to get? Am I going to be able to leverage enough to have more? Am I going to be able to still hold on to all this money that's coming into my life? Am I going to have enough for my future? You see, all these questions come into play. And whether consciously or subconsciously, you're driven or you just are devoted to money and your dependence and your reliance is upon this stuff, you're living like there's no God. It's sad, but it's a fact. Let me tell you something about greedy people. When they hit a big bunk financially, who is it that they involve into the equation of their life? It's not their parents. It's not their financial advisors. It's God. 
Why is it God? Because they somewhere in their life believe that God knows just enough to help them with their situation, but they're not going to call him in until it's the absolute last possible moment. So here's what happens, and it happens for most of us and for most Americans, I think. God is like this backup finance plan, right, where we go to work, we make our money, we make our living, we invest here, we invest there, we save here, we save there, we spend here, we spend there, we go to church, maybe throw a little bit into the offering plate, but we continue to live our lives our own way, and then something happens, whether it be the economy tanks, you lose a job, there's an illness in the family, a death in the family, whatever it may be, and you just watch finances plummet. And it frightens you. And it scares you. And it's at this moment where you start to say, hey, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, I should get God involved. Maybe. Maybe you think, well, you know, maybe instead of going to God, let me try other things. I'm going to go and I'm going to marry a rich person instead. That's going to solve all my problems. Or you know what, maybe I'm going to convince my parents to actually give me a larger portion of their will when they pass away. Hopefully that happens sooner. Not me personally, I'm just saying that in the context of the sermon. <laughs> right? You know, whatever this may be, maybe I need to sell a portion of the second house that I don't actually need. Or my beach house. Or my summer home. My third summer home in Italy. Whatever it may be, right? We start to go these other routes and then finally it comes down to, you know what? I have nothing left. So now it's time for me to ask God to come into my life. Now it's time for me to ask God to help me financially. And we use him as this backup plan. But here's what God has to say about this. Jesus, what he says is so consistent. He says, I love you. I want to help you. I want to be the master. I want to be the ruler of your life. But I know that you're devoted more to your money than you are to me. And God will not be your backup plan. It's not going to happen. Your creator will not sit on the sidelines where you put him and just allow you to invoke him when you need to call him over like it's a dog. It's not going to happen. God will not be your backup plan. God wants to be this master. He wants to be the ruler of your life, and you have to break the power of greed and give your life over to him. Give your finances, all of these things over to him. And if you live your life like your ultimate dependence is upon your stuff and its acquisition, God is not your master. God is not your master at all. And he says, I want you to break this power, that greed and that money holds over you. It's not the assumption that it's all for your consumption. It's not what it's about. So the key to breaking this power and to keeping it broken in your life, to put God at the forefront of your life, to make sure your dependence upon him is to really ask yourself a couple questions. It's really to take a look to see what this key is. And you know what the, the biggest part of this is? That this key is a habit. It becomes a habit. It's not some prayer that you make or some one-time decision that you make. What it is is it's truly a habit that you develop, the habit that becomes your life that breaks and keeps broken the power of greed. What is that habit? The great news is it's not even a financial decision. It's asking God to be the priority of your life. It's about asking God to step in and say, God, I'm going to trust you in my deepest and my darkest times to take care of me, to provide for me to help lift me up to be the ruler of my life. God, I'm done allowing other things to rule me. I want you to take control. Here's what God knows about you. If he can get your checkbook, if he can get to your money, he can get to your heart. Because God knows that where your treasure is, 
that's where your heart goes. He knows that's the truth. He knows it's been a fact the whole life. And this is why Jesus teaches this. This is not about money. It's about your devotion. It's about what you're loyal to, what your deciding factors are. Now, I don't claim to have mastered any of this by any means, but in my own life, I've had financial ups, I've had financial downs, and if I could just give you three simple words that have radically changed my life, that helped me understand this concept of finances, that have drastically changed how I view the power that money has over me, it would be as follows. These three words would be this, give, save, and live. Give, save, and live. This means when you get paid, the first portion of it is you give a percentage of it back. Where you say, God, I'm going to humbly admit that I would have nothing if it weren't for you. You've given me the talents. You've given me the skills. You've given me the abilities. I know that I would not be financially blessed without your provision in my life. So God, I'm going to recognize that. I'm going to be obedient to that. And I'm going to give you back in honor. And so we take and we give a portion of this back to God. But this is terrifying. This frightens us to give away our hard-earned money, right? So let me rephrase this into another way that's easier for us. Give and then hoard and then consume. We still get to be consumers and hoarders, so everything's okay now, right? Yeah, give and then hoard and then consume. That means after you've given a percentage away where you've recognized and you've given this thankfulness to what God's done in your life, you do save a little bit. Because what if you do get sick? What if you do lose your job? Well, you know what? If you get sick and you lose your job, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to pray. And God wants you to be in a position where he can say, oh, I've seen your obedience. I've seen your faithfulness. Don't worry. I got you covered. I got you taken care of. But we still want to hold on to that protection aspect. So we save a little bit. And then the rest is to consume. Woo! We get to spend still, right? We still get to enjoy this. So give, and then save, and then consume in this order. And there's an easier way for me to illustrate this, and this is something that I've started to do in my own life, is that I have these three jars. One that says give, one that says save, and one that says live. Hopefully you all can see that. I'm going to put this up here. Give, save, and live. So when we get paid, we think, yes, making the big bucks now, right? Yeah, woo, I worked hard for this dollar, however it may be, right? Could be $100, $1,000, a million dollars. If you're a million dollars, that's awesome. All right, so, right? So whatever it is that you're making, we see this as a whole entity, right? Or like, this is a dollar. Like, this is my paycheck. This is my money. This is my life. It's my food. It's my house. It's my rent, my bills, my taxes. It's all of these things, right? And we see it as a whole. And so what do we do with this? We kind of like go and we say, my precious. Right? We hold on to it. We're like, no, 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 I'm not giving it to anybody. I'm not letting it go anywhere else because we treat it as a whole. This whole thing is for me. But you see, we have to break this idea that this isn't truly what our paycheck looks like. What it looks like is more like this. It's broken up into pieces. And what God says is that every time that this comes into your life, don't think of it as one whole entity. Think of it as a bunch of pieces. Because then what you can do is you can say, God, I'm so thankful for this gift. I'm going to give you 10% back to you in honor. And you know what? Just in case something happens, I want to be prepared. So I'm going to save another 10%. But check this out. Ready? Oh, yeah. I get to live now. I get a spin. Oh, yeah, there's a car. There's the movies. There's in and out. There's in and out again. Oh, and a third in and out, right? Because we love in and out, right? We keep doing this. 10, 10, 80. Simplest principle to live by. Simplest principle to live by. And it's something that's dramatically changed my life. 
that I can still be honoring to God by giving to him. I can still build up this savings so that way I have some kind of stability and the assumption that I am kind of in control, even though I'm not really, of my finances, but I still get to spend what I want to spend. I still get to do that. It radically changes your life when you can apply this principle, when you can start to invest in this way. Do you guys know what financial independence is? It's living independently of serving your money. Let me say that again. It's living independently of serving your money. And that's what financial independence is. And that's something that so radically changed my life because I came to the question and I said, you know what, God? Do, does this money serve me or do I serve this money? Is my life fueled by this dollar bill? Is it driven by this money that this makes more decisions than you ever do in my life? That's what financial independence is, is when you can say, God, I'm going to live independently of serving my money. And once you start to apply this principle, once you find that you're ultimately devoted to God, money, it's just stuff that you use to get through life. It has no power, has no chains that hold you down. And the key to breaking the power is to do this in our consumer economy. Like I said, I love America. I love this country. I love consuming. I love stores. I love the grocery stores. I love to shop every now and then. I love in and out, as you could just tell, right? I love all these things. Don't get me wrong. But I am just as susceptible as anybody listening to this message of crossing over financial guardrails of crossing over the lines. And that's why this is so important for us to recognize and to set in place in our lives, to use this principle to guide you. This is the guardrail that changes everything in your life. But why does it change everything? Well, because of what Jesus goes on to say in the rest of Matthew chapter 6. And it's fascinating when we see this. I'm going to start back at the beginning and read what we just read again, and I'm going to continue on. And I've underlined a few words that I think are important for us to recognize as we go through this. Keep in mind, this is Jesus' teaching during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no one can serve. You're going to serve something. It's either going to be God or it's going to be money. And when you're serving something, that means it's a master over you. You're either going to serve, or no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted, which is what Jesus spent this whole sermon series about money about. Where's your devotion? You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, Jesus is saying that you're either devoted to God, your father, or you're devoted to money, to your stuff, to its acquisition, to all of these things. And the best way to know how, the best way to know which one you're serving is just to simply look at what you do with your money. Simply to look at how you spend your money, how you invest your money. Does it own you or do you own it? Does it serve you or do you serve it? See, he says, no one, no, you cannot serve both God and money. It just doesn't happen. And a few minutes later, Jesus continues on in verse 31, 32, he says this. So do not worry. This is the conclusion of everything. So do not worry. You see, we worry about money. It's the forefront of all of our lives. And he makes it clear. He says, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Maybe we don't ask those questions. Maybe it's, how am I going to provide to get my child through college? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to pay back taxes? How am I going to pay to put food on the table? How am I going to do this? Whatever it may be, and you fill in the blank. 
See, money starts to control us, and God says, do not worry. You see, I think a lot of us, we lie in bed at night, and we allow money, pieces of paper with pictures of people who are dead and will never amount to anything in our lives, control us. Right? When you think about it, it's really awkward to think about that, right? We have so much power over these old artifacts, if you will, in our lives. But these things, if we lie in bed at night awake and worry about these, they consume our thoughts. And it allows us to worry, and it steals our peace. And God says, I don't want your joy to be stolen. He says, I don't want you to have to worry. I don't want money to steal your joy. I don't want it to consume your thinking. I don't want it to be the front and the center, because if it is, that's what you're going to be serving. That's what you're going to be going after. So you look at this verse, and you go, okay, well, what does this mean? How do I get to a place where I don't worry? It's difficult in the society we live in because rent's always rising. The cost of things is always rising. How do I get to a point where I don't worry anymore? And maybe you take this back to your families, right? And you start to discuss it. Well, how can we give and save and spend a little bit differently in our lives? And the kids start throwing a tantrum because they're not getting the new Xbox consoles or whatever it may be. Or maybe that's the husband, whatever it may be, right? So there's just tension that breaks down in the family over this. And if there is, it just shows you that you are serving money. That that's what's got the biggest grip on your life, not God. And it's terrifying when you really see that. See, God doesn't need your money. He just doesn't want you to worry. That's why he says, do not worry about these things. Don't worry, I've got them covered. And then listen to what he says. This is awesome, this next verse. He says, for the pagans run after these things. Run after it also means to be served or to devote yourself to. He says, the pagans run after these things. The people who truly live like there is no God run after these things. So in essence, what he's saying here, he says that if you are focusing more on money and finances and things as the front and center of your life, you're living as if God is not a part of your life. You're living as if God doesn't know and that God doesn't care about you. He says that's what a pagan is. A pagan is somebody who doesn't really believe that God intervenes in human affairs, that God can't help you in certain ways. But how drastically different would our life be if we truly believe that God does know and that God does care about us? How drastically would our life change if we thought these things? Listen to this next part, and it's the crux of the matter. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need them. God knows you need to pay finances. God knows you need to pay rent. He knows you need to pay your taxes. He knows you need to survive or get your kids through college. He knows every single one of these things. So why do we still live as if we think that he doesn't know and that he doesn't care? And it's so sad that we break these things down. We've all prayed prayers where we sort of think that God has intervened, but what if we truly lived our lives in this manner? Where we say, God, I know that you know my struggles. I know that you care deeply for me. So I'm gonna give this situation to you. I'm going to let you be the one that takes control of my life. That's what it comes down to. That's the principle behind this. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows your needs. He knows you once. He knows the things that you think that you need to have, but you really don't, right? He knows all of these things. What if you really believe that? Now, you may ask, okay, I think I can believe that, but how do I break this power? How do I do that? Well, look what Jesus says in the next part of Scripture. And this first couple words are so key. He says this, but seek first. But seek first. That means change your life. Reprioritize your life. 
In other words, you've got to put something at the front of the list. You've got to reprioritize, re-strategize. You've got to reorder or rearrange your life. You've been seeking what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, where you're going to live, what you're going to do with your life. But what if you started to seek something first? What if you started to change your life knowing that God knows, that God cares, that God will provide for you? The next logical thing will be to start living your life in that manner by reprioritizing your life. He says, I want you to seek something else first since you know that God knows and that God cares. And this is how he finishes this verse, and I think a lot of us are familiar with this. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. All these things. That's Jesus' promise, but this is also the problem, right? What we see here is what is going to come first in our lives. That's why I say to you, give first, save second, and then spend the rest. That's what it comes down to. And here's the interesting thing that I've observed when it really comes down to the conclusion of all this, is that typically, when do we start to learn and apply this in our lives? It's when the financial bottom drops out from underneath us. It's when over the course of time, whether it be because of debt or things that we had no control over or bad habits or bad decisions, we find ourselves walking through life and we're on this edge and all of a sudden the edge just falls out from underneath us and we're terrified and we say, what now? Where do I go from here? I don't know what to do. It's at that moment that we start to say, okay, maybe, just maybe, I've been doing things wrong all along. Maybe I need to start changing things in my life to reprioritize. It's not a matter of just getting out of debt. It's a matter of reprioritizing your life. It's a matter of putting other things first before your own desires, your own wants, the own things that you think that you need. It's about truly beginning by giving. And some of you may say, well, I can't afford to give. Well, you couldn't afford to give when you were rich either. So it doesn't make the difference, right? It's not about giving. What it is, it's about showing obedience to God. That's what it comes down to. It's by saying, God, I'm going to be devoted to you first and foremost above anything else in my life. That's the truth of the matter. That's where my heart's desire is going to be. See, people begin to give first, save second, and live on the rest. You know what happens every single time? They really start to save more, to spend less, and find a happiness that they've been missing for a long time. There always was this something in their life that was empty or incomplete that they didn't know what it was, but just this gut feeling that they're never satisfied. When you start to apply this principle, it disappears. And I've talked to enough people from different walks of life to know that this can happen. And I know that there's as many different reasons as there are as people in this room as to why this may not work in your situation, but I can guarantee you that if you at least try to pursue this in your life, God will do amazing things because it's showing him that you're willing to break the power that money holds over you, that you're willing to give to God and reprioritize your life. So here's what I want you to do. I know this is the worst time in the economy to talk about this. Maybe it's the worst time in your personal lives financially to talk about this, but it's probably the most important time in your relationship with God to talk about this to be able to say, God, I am ready to reprioritize. I know there's never a great time, but this is the moment. Or say, God, I am ready to financially plan to recognize you above anything else. God, where I can step back and say, it's not about me, God. This is just Christian obedience. It's a one-on-one stuff. It's about me being devoted to you. 
where you can truly step back and you can say, God, I'm not just going to pray, help me. God, fix it. God, just save me in this situation and leave. But no, you can say, God, I want you to change my life so it's your kingdom first and my kingdom second. And if you can do that, God will take care of your needs. He says, God will seek first. God will give you all of these things. He knows what you want. He knows what you need. He will provide if you are faithful to him. You just got to be faithful. You got to give. You got to save. You got to live. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And it is life-changing. It's generationally changing. We need to show the children this principle. We need to show each other this principle. We need to show our generation this principle of being obedient about saving and about spending and how God plays a factor in all of this. Give, save, and live. Do you serve your money or does it serve you? And what do you think God's trying to tell you through this? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise and thank you so much for this time, God, that you've just given us to come together. And God, we pray that you can just transform our lives just to understand this principle. God, that we can really just see money as just an object that doesn't hold power over us. God, that we can release it and give it to you and say, God, I recognize the blessings, the countless blessings you give me every single day of my life. And God, I know that I have this major guardrail of greed in my life. God, I pray that you help me see the ditch of the consumer, see the ditch of the hoarder. God, to reprioritize, to reorganize my life to serve you. God, that your kingdom first and my kingdom second. God, change our hearts this morning. We love you and we give you this in your name. Amen.